Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we always take a few moments to give people an opportunity to make sure that they are in fellowship and ready to study the word. Scripture teaches that salvation is based on faith alone in Jesus Christ, that when we trust in Christ alone for our salvation, we have eternal life, our sins are positionally forgiven, but when we do sin as we do as we go through our Christian life, it breaks fellowship with God, and so we need to Uh, in silent prayer, uh, confess our sins to God, and he forgives us, cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And so we always take a few moments of silent prayer to make sure, so everybody can make sure they're in fellowship, ready to study the word, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, it's such a tremendous privilege to come together each week, each night, to study your word, to be reminded of your faithfulness, to be reminded of your provision for us, to be reminded that no matter what we're going through, no matter what we face, no matter what challenges are in front of us in life, that you are in control, that nothing really happens by accident, and as things, as we go through things in life, that that uh, we know that you have prepared us, that you have given us the provision of your word, your promises, and your various principles in your word so that we can know that how to trust you in the midst of these circumstances. Father, as we continue with our study, we need to be reminded that you are in control, but that does not mean that we simply give up or that we do not have responsibility to make decisions on our own and that within the scope and framework of your plan, there's also our own free will, our own personal responsibility to take your word and apply it to the circumstances we face. And only by doing so can we grow and mature and come to uh, see within ourselves a character transformation that transforms us into the character of Christ. Now, Father, as we study your word this evening, we pray you'll help us to understand and think through these things and the things that are beyond us. We'll just set it aside until we get a chance to come back and study them at a later date. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now we're continuing our study in Romans 8, 28, and 29, and we're focusing on understanding these important terms that are used in Scripture. Now, they're not used a lot in Scripture. Terms like foreknowledge, predestination are words that are used just a few times in in the Scripture. They represent God's plan. That's the most important thing to remember is they represent God's plan. Now, over the course of the history of the church, there have been 
various positions that have been taken regarding to understanding these concepts. There have been uh, major battles, splits in churches and denominations over uh, many of these things that are taught. For some people, they just go way over their head, and that's, that's fine. Uh, it's tough sometimes to try to think our way through these issues related to God's control of history, God's control of his plan on the one hand, and human uh, responsibility and responsible freedom of choice on the other hand, and both are true. I think as uh, <clears throat> we began this study in this section uh, two or three lessons back, I, I think that a God who can allow man freedom to make decisions and yet oversee uh, all of the circumstances in history so that uh, despite the chaos that is there from sin, despite the chaos that is there from uh, evil decisions from human beings, a God who can still uh, orchestrate the affairs of history to bring about his desired uh, ends uh, is greater than a God who is in control of every decision and every action and every aspect that of what is going on within history. I do not believe that God is a deterministic God in that sense. Scripture teaches he is a personal God, and he is sovereign over the universe, and he has a plan that he is working out. But within that plan, he allows for uh, free will decisions, but it doesn't. He's, he's constructed reality in such a way that he is still able to to handle the chaos that comes as a result of free agents making decisions. Now, I always have to caution people saying we're free but only in a limited sense because of sin. There are certain things that we are unable to do, and sin does impact that. But ultimately, when it comes to the most important issue in life, which is our salvation, uh, there is a, an aspect of our responsibility that comes into play in terms of making a decision. And even in explaining that, we have to recognize that in the division of uh, theological camps in this area, uh, one side, usually referred to as the Calvinist side, the Lordship side, uh, view that the, even the act of faith is something that has merit in and of itself. It, uh, and therefore, the faith that saves is not the same as the faith we use to, for example, get up in the morning and go in and however bleary-eyed and stumbling we might be, when we hit the button on the coffee maker, we have faith that it's going to start. I don't know about you, but in my house, I hate those little breakers they have all over the kitchen, and I'm not always sure. I always have faith that when I press that button, it's going to start, but about once a week, something's happened overnight when nothing's been on, and pop that breaker uh, hidden away on the countertop of the kitchen somewhere, and the coffee pot doesn't turn on, and I have to then find that little button and press it in, and then the coffee pot will come in. But that's faith. We have faith that when we uh, go to uh, start the car in the morning, that the car will start. We have faith in lots of different things. Faith in and of itself, uh, in contrast to, to the uh, Calvinist position, doesn't have merit in and of itself. Anybody can believe anything. 
and everyone believes things. That's why at one level you have a a picture used many times in Scripture of faith that is compared to eating. Uh, Jesus even talked about this in relation to uh, himself as the bread of life. Uh, He who eats my flesh... He's not talking about physically eating his flesh. He's not using a literal literal figure there. He's talking about taking something with to make it part of our own, part of ourselves, believing it. Eating is that anybody can eat, anybody can drink. Uh, and so uh, it is not the act of faith itself that has merit. It is the object of faith that has merit. And the object of faith is in salvation is the work of Christ on the cross. So that faith is non-meritorious. It does not uh, bring us any credit because we believe. It is the object of belief. Our ability to understand the gospel is enhanced through the enlightenment of God the Holy Spirit who works in and through the preaching of the Word of God and the explanation of the gospel. And he opens the eyes of the unbeliever, enabling them to be able to understand the gospel and then make a choice as to whether to accept or reject it. So when we explain the issues related to uh, God's sovereignty and human responsibility, they're both true. One does not cancel the other because they, in another sense, operate in different spheres. For example, in the sphere of human in the sphere of creation, in the sphere of human activity, uh, we think about cause and effect, but that is a creation sphere idea of cause and effect when everything operates on a timeline continuum and one thing causes another. But to assume that, for example, you often hear Calvinists say that if God does not determine the decisions of the creature, then the creature makes the ultimate determination and therefore God simply responds and he becomes a a responder to the actions or or decisions of the creation. And that is a cause-effect issue. But embedded in that is an assumption that cause and effect in the realm of the creator is identical to cause and effect in the realm of the creature. And the terms cause, while we use the term cause and effect, they don't mean the same thing. A couple, one other thing I was going to explain a second ago that I, that really helped me understand some things is to realize in Genesis chapter one, when God created the heavens and the earth and the seas and all that is in them, he created all of the plant life, all of the, uh, he created Adam and Eve, he created all of the physical laws that operate on planet Earth. He created everything, and it was a state of absolute perfection. There was no corruption in uh, in the human race or in the animal kingdom of creation or in the inanimate aspect of creation. And yet God embedded, because of his omniscience and his foreknowledge, God embedded within the DNA structure of all of all of all living things, and within the laws of physics that op- operate and governed everything else, a flexibility 
so that when Adam sinned and as a result of the free exercise of his volition, it set a reverberating tsunami, spiritual tsunami through all of creation that reverberated in such a way that it changed the inherent nature of creation. Everything became corrupt, not just man dying spiritually, but it impacted the animals. In, in the curse in Genesis 3, which really means in the judgment of God, the word curse often brings to mind some sort of juju black magic, and that's not the, uh, the sense or the meaning of the word in Scripture. It's more the idea of divine judgment on something. Uh, God said that the serpent would uh, <clears throat> be cursed more than more than, that's a term of comparison, more than all the beasts of the field. That implies that all of the beasts of the field would also come under judgment, but the serpent more so. In Romans 8, as we have already studied, we've seen, for example, in verse 22, in 20, uh, starting 20 down through 22, the creation is subject to futility. It is under the bondage of corruption, verse 21. Uh, the whole creation groans and labors uh, with birth pangs until now. So we see that all of inanimate creation is depicted here as groaning and suffering because of the judgment of God on all of the universe for sin. But God had built into every aspect from the smallest subatomic particle to the largest um, galaxy in the universe, God built a flexibility into everything physical and spiritual to handle the chaos that would come when uh, spiritual death entered the universe. And so that helps us to understand that God created man, created uh, the human race in such a way that even when they make free will decisions that and go completely off the rails, God's sovereignty is great enough to incorporate that uh, chaos into his plan without losing control and without losing the ability to bring his plan to its intended end. How he does that, we don't know. But we can understand that both principles of God's sovereign control and free human responsibility uh, can take place without them being contrary to one another, especially when we understand that how things function within the realm of the creator and how things function within the realm of the creature, the creature are not identical. And so when we extrapolate from our frame of reference within creation to the creator, we often make enter into logical fallacies and uh, irrational leaps because we're trying to compare uh, an apple uh, to a cactus uh, uh, prickly pine, prickly pear fruit instead of two apples. They're not the same. The realm of the creature doesn't function like the realm of the creator. They are two completely different things. There may be some similarities, but they're only analogous. They are not identical, or as philosophers like to call it, univocal. Uh, They are different. They are not completely opposite one another, which is another term called equivocal, which means they have nothing in common. They're uh, analogical. 
Uh, but that gets into a lot of other technical vocabulary, and we're not in philosophy 201 this year, so I'm not going to go any further down down that road. But I hope that kind of gives you a little bit of an understanding and framework, especially because I know we have at least uh, three people here tonight who haven't been part of this study the last three weeks. And so I want you all to understand that I know this this is a tough, tough topic and subject uh, to encounter. And it's easy if you haven't listened to the whole framework to maybe... Uh, misunderstand. I hope I'm a clearer teacher. But uh, in fact, one year I was, uh, when I was probably about 21 or 22 years of age, I went to a Bible church, large Bible church here in Houston just to visit. And the pastor, whom I have since come to know very, very well, and we actually believe pretty much the same thing, taught on this passage, and I thought he was taking a very high Calvinistic position. And I couldn't have been more wrong. And he's never taken that position, but that's what it sounded like coming out of the pulpit. So um, it's easy to to misunderstand some of the things that are being said sometimes. This is a mature doctrine. Peter in First Peter talks about the fact that the Apostle Paul has uh, said some things that are very difficult to understand, and this is one of them. There are many other things that Paul teaches that are also difficult to understand. So if this is a tough thing to understand for you, then just set it aside, think about it later, and eventually as you uh, mature and reflect on these things, then you will gain greater insight and understanding. We're in one of the great passages of Scripture, Romans eight twenty-eight and 29, which is a tremendous uh, passage for understanding God's uh, God's provision for us, that God is in control. The context is dealing with suffering. And there's a lot of people who are going through suffering. I know of a lot of folks in this congregation who are going through a lot of difficult times. As a congregation, it seems right now, we are going through a period where there's a lot of health testing and I, that I've observed. Some people know of some. Some people don't know of others. But there is a lot of health testing that's going on right now. Uh, in this congregation, we need to be in prayer for one another. There are other difficulties that are going on in terms of financial challenges, uh, in terms of just uh, physical, educational challenges, job challenges. Uh, we all face those things. These are all part of the adversities of life. And starting in verse 17 of this chapter, Paul shifted to introduce the topic of suffering, to challenge believers to recognize that if we endure in the Christian life, if we press on towards spiritual maturity, suffering, adversity has a purpose, and we will be rewarded in the, at the judgment seat of Christ. And there's two categories of rewards that are covered under the concept of inheritance in these passages. One is the, the level that's provided for every believer, heirs of God, verse 17, and the second are joint heirs with Christ, and that's conditioned upon suffering with him. That is, going through the various uh, uh, levels of adversity in life and applying the word of God to those levels of adversity so that we can grow and be rewarded with him uh, and be glorified with him in the kingdom when we will rule and reign with Christ. Now, all of that I've covered before, 
That's the context. So suffering, the suffering we go through as believers, the suffering from sin on creation, all of these things are the context. So when Paul says we know that all things work together for good, the all things in context is talking about all of the difficulties, adversities, challenges that we face in life, that God brings about something that he's he's uh it's part of his plan in our life there's this is not purposeless there is a purpose to this there is a plan you and i do not perceive the plan we don't understand how these things are working together but god does and when we get to heaven we may see how these things have all worked out and come together but we don't know the plan. We see every now and then get little glimpses of things that happen. Every now and then we recognize that that there are things going on in our life that are just sort of unusual and uh, they're not coincidental, but we have no idea what where God's taking us or how he's going to use some of these some of these circumstances, but we know God is in control. But God is not in control to the exclusion of our volition. So Romans 8.28 says that this verse just basically emphasizes the fact that God's in control, God has a plan, you and I may not perceive it or understand it, but God does, and that's all that matters. Our responsibility is to trust him and to remain obedient in the midst of those uh, challenges. So he says in verse 28, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. And as I've said before, Paul addresses his readers as if they're all pursuing spiritual maturity. Now, he knows that there are some who haven't quite made that decision yet. There are some who won't ever make that decision. There are some who will decide to make it to the second grade, others who will drop out at the fifth grade level, others will make it to the seventh grade, and some are still going to be pursuing spiritual growth all the way to the day they die. But Paul always addresses everyone as if they are high achievers, And I understand that as a pastor, I treat everybody in the congregation as if they're all pursuing spiritual maturity and they're all, if they're not here every uh, night of the week, that is on Tuesday night and Thursday night, then I assume that they're all watching at home. I know some aren't, but I treat the congregation as people who are all on the same uh, train, as it were, going to the same destiny which is to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ to the maximum. And uh, I expect everybody to get on that train at some point or another. So that's who he's talking about. These are the called. The called is a term that simply summarizes those who have responded to the invitation of the gospel to believe in Jesus Christ as Savior. If they have responded, they are the called. They are the invited ones who have responded. And they have been in, called according to a purpose, a God's plan uh, for the human race. And then he's going to explain this just a little more in the next verse. And he says, for whom he foreknew. See, the, the, verse 29 brings us back to the word called, but I, I just have these two verses on the screen. He's going to p- plug the concept of being called into the stream of decision-making within the plan of God. So he starts off saying, first of all, in this stream of, dis- of events, there's foreknowledge. Second, there's predestination, then there's calling, then there's justification, then there's glorification. That comes in in verse 30. 
He says, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Now, here's another observation that I didn't make clear last week. In in a minute, I'm going to go over the quotes I showed you last week from a couple of Calvinists who are who've written commentaries on Romans, and their uh, quotes are uh, typical of the way Calvinists interpret predestination. And they usually interpret foreknowledge as some sort of choosing or as a synonym for election and predestination. The problem is this verse and. Another verse we'll look at tonight clearly distinguish these activities. Foreknowledge cannot be defined as being chosen or lovingly selected because uh, that comes under the purview of the next word. We, we have to keep these activities distinct from one another because they're not treated as the same thing. Uh, <clears throat> Douglas Moo a well-respected theologian, scholar, professor of theology at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. Uh, I have spent a lot of time uh, over the course of our Roman study reading a lot of what he has to say. He says many good things, but he has a general framework of high Calvinism that I did not do not agree with. Uh, nevertheless, he does uh, say some good things at some points, makes some good observations based on word studies and language, that kind of a thing. But he falls apart here. And the main thing I looked at last time was his definition of foreknowledge. And he says it does not mean know before in the sense of intellectual knowledge or cognition or what we would call prescience. Prescience is a compound word, pre meaning before, science meaning knowledge, to know something ahead of time. He would say it doesn't mean uh, prescience or to know before, but it means enter into relationship before or choose or determine before. And as I pointed out, it, that's, that is not evident in the way the words are, are used. Um, another writer I referred to last time uh, was Thomas Schreiner in his commentary on Romans, and he says that, that the idea of foreknowledge really is determined by the word knowledge. Okay? Now, I, I had, as I read through uh, something last week, I read the word forestall, and stall is the root word, but the meaning of forestall cannot be determined and is not the same as the word of its root, stall. We'll look at some other examples. And what I mean by that is foreknowledge cannot be determined by the meaning of its root, knowledge. This is called a root fallacy in terms of, of word study or a, a fallacy related to etymology. But this is typical reasoning for the Calvinists. They'll, they'll shift from foreknowledge to just knowledge, go back to the Old Testament where they look at just the word for no. And, it, and and try to derive the meaning for foreknowledge from just the word no. And so he will conclude, as I've underlined here, that foreknowledge relates to his covenantal love in which he sets his affection on those whom he has chosen. Well, choosing is selection or election, which is a totally different word in the context and in the process. So they, they tend to muddy these things up. So they're all, they try to take these words that are used in their, their sense for election and they, they give them such uh, synonymous definitions that they're all really saying the same thing. That's not fair to, to the writers of scripture. Palmer, in a book on the five points of Calvinist, says, 
that when the Bible speaks of God knowing particular individual, it also means he has a special regard for them, that they are the objects of his affection and concern. So that, again, shows what I'm talking about. Then I just gave you some definitions. I'll just look at uh, BDAG here. It's to know beforehand or in advance, or it means uh, to choose something beforehand. That's the basic meaning of the word in all literature outside of the passages that we are looking at. And as I pointed out last time, when you have a word in Scripture and you're not sure what it means in this context, you can't assume a meaning, say that's what it means in this context, when in every other context it means something else, and you list this one context as the exception, and it means what you want it to mean. You can't do that. And that's essentially what they've done because they say, well, the subject of the verb here is God, and so the word has a completely different meaning when God is the subject than when uh, anything else or anyone else is the subject of the verb. And that is another uh, fallacy in word studies. The word's going to mean the same thing regardless of who's performing the action. So I pointed that out last time, pointed out some other dictionaries and some key verses that we went through, Acts 2.23, uh, 1 Peter 1.2, I believe. Uh, let me see. I stopped right about here looking at 1 Peter uh, 1.20. I think I went through all of these, and I stopped right about here, uh, starting on uh, Acts 2.23. So, Let's turn in our Bibles. Hold your place here. Oh, we probably won't come back here, but we'll go to Acts 2.23 to, uh, to begin. Acts 2.23. The way that you know the meaning of a word in Scripture is because you look at how the word is used, okay? That's the same thing in English. When you go to Webster's Dictionary or Collins Dictionary or the uh, Oxford English Dictionary, uh, the lexicographers, that's the men who are writing the lexicons, the dictionaries, the lexicographers are simply studying how people use a word. That's why you will sometimes see new words enter into a dictionary or you will see new meanings enter into a dictionary. In some dictionaries, you'll even see words like ain't and some other things that I remember in elementary school. The teachers would say, well, that's not in the dictionary. It's not a word. Well, you use a word, if it enters into the language of a people often enough, it becomes a usable word and it will have a dictionary meaning. It may be improper grammar or other things may be problems, but what determines meaning is not the dictionary. The dictionary is simply organizing and categorizing the way people use a word. And over time, words change in their meaning. For example, in the early 1600s, when the King James Version was translated, the word charity was equivalent to what we would refer to today as unconditional love, love that was not determined by the behavior of the object of love, but was determined more by the objective character of the person loving who was doing something to benefit the other person. Today, the word charity usually refers to some sort of benevolence type of ministry that's provided for people who are in need. It is a form of love, but charity is no longer considered a synonym for love. The word has changed its meaning over time. And so the meanings that are listed in the dictionary change over time to reflect usage. So when you do a word study in Scripture... 
uh, what I try to teach uh, pastors and students of Greek is that you don't start by going to the dictionary. You start by going to a concordance or using a Bible study program to give you a listing of every place that word is used. And then you analyze that word usage in those verses to determine its characteristics, qualifications, and the range of meaning uh, within that word. After you have thoroughly investigated all of those verses so that you're familiar with the data, much like a crime scene investigator shows up at a crime scene on NCIS or CSI or CSI New York or any of those other shows we like to watch, uh, when they show up, they're just presented with a lot of data, but they don't know what it means yet. They have to analyze each piece of data to see what they can learn from it in what's called an inductive study. Once they have analyzed all that and come to thoroughly understand the evidence, then they begin to make associations and then come to conclusions. And then they have to check and double-check those conclusions against other facts to make sure that they didn't miss something. That's the same thing that we do in a word study. You look at all the places where it's used. You look at all of the conditions. You weigh the data. And then the last thing you do is you check it against some of the dictionaries and some of the other sources that have extended discussions and analysis. And then you may discover that you missed something. You may discover that the dictionary says that this word means something. And you say, well, I found no evidence of that. And I can point out at least three examples, this word being one of them in Art and Gingrich, where they have introduced a category of meaning to the word that is, I believe, read into the debatable passages. But if you look at how the word is used outside of those debatable passages, there's no evidence anywhere else that it has that meaning. For knowledge, everywhere else, that it's used in secular and biblical Greek, other than about three passages in the New Testament, always has the idea of knowing ahead of time, knowing beforehand. So you can't say, well, I think Romans 8.29, I think 1 Peter 1.2, and I think Ephesians 1, uh, those passages, it means God has a prior loving uh, relationship that he's chosen and that's the meaning of foreknowledge. Where's your evidence for that? There is none. You can't use those verses to be their evidence. So we come to a passage like uh, Acts 2.23, one we've studied before, and this is in the midst of Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. This is the first day of the church, the day that the church was born. This is the day God the Holy Spirit descended upon the 11 disciples and the followers of Jesus in Jerusalem. Uh, with uh, and, and when they were uh, together, he hovered over them like a flame of fire. They heard a rushing wind. So it's a, a full sensory experience. And Peter then began to explain what was going on, and he does so in light of Old Testament passages. But uh, what's really important is his analysis of God's plan here that we're looking at. He says in verse 22, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst. See, there was the empirical confirmatory evidence there. 
as you yourselves know him. Okay, so now I've got the immediate context for us. Him, that is Jesus Christ, having been delivered. uh, It's a past tense participle there. Having been delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. So in that first phrase, we see the role of God in his overriding plan of human history. But who's the object of God's foreknowledge? It's Jesus Christ. Is his object of is his foreknowledge of Jesus Christ here related to his salvation? No, it's not. It is related to the role that Jesus Christ would play in history. Now, a little later on, we're going to look at how foreknowledge is used in relation to the nation Israel. And in relationship to the Jews, God had a plan for them within human history. God selected them for a plan and a purpose within his plan. Context is not related to individual selection of uh, people for salvation or justification. It has to do with uh, God's general plan and purpose for their life. So Jesus Christ, on the one hand, there's a plan of God that his son would be delivered over to the authorities and he would be crucified. But that doesn't negate the individual responsibility and free choice of the Jewish leadership, not every Jewish person, because many were believers in an Old Testament sense by this time, um, by the time of the cross, but their leadership, the leadership of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians, made the determinative choice as the representatives of the people to reject the messianic claims of Jesus. So they had a responsibility. So Peter says, on the one hand, God was working and he had a plan of redemption and this worked, this was the plan. And on the other hand, he says, you accusing the uh, audience as part of the responsibility of the Jewish leadership, you have taken by lawless hands. See, that is emphasizing their role and responsibility. It hasn't been diminished one little bit because God had a plan to do this. They did it. They chose to do it. They went along with the plans and of the and the rejection of their leaders. So they are fully culpable uh, uh, in the uh, death of Jesus Christ. Uh, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. Now, the word here for determined purpose, now notice that in the King James translation, and many of these translators had a more Calvinistic bent, not all of them, but many of them did. Uh, they took that word boule in the Greek, which simply means a will, purpose, an intent, or aim. It, it's a plan to achieve something, to bring something about. Determined purpose it adds an adjective to the word purpose that is not within the context. It, it doubles the meaning in order to emphasize a determinism, I think, within the, within the passage. It is simply that he was delivered according to the plan or the purpose or the intent of God. And this intent, this boule, often indicates an act of will, a choice, a determination to do something uh, based on reflection and deliberation. Thought went into this. God had a plan that involved his uh, well, well thought out in terms of all the particulars. 
So he's delivered over on the basis of this plan of God and the foreknowledge of God. So the plan of God clearly took into account information available to God through his omniscience. Omniscience, as we'll see in a minute, includes all the knowable, everything that God knows. His knowledge is not like our knowledge. His knowledge is direct. It's intuitive. It is uh, uh, immediate. He does not add things to it. He does not ever acquire knowledge or lose knowledge. Uh, He immediately, directly, and intuitively knows everything in terms of all of its relationships, all of its causes, all of its effects. Uh, nothing is left out. He knows all of the actual things that will happen and all of the potential things uh, that will happen. And so uh, it, typically in Calvinism, they'll say God elected. He chose some to salvation. In some systems, they don't go as far as preterition, which is double predestination, that is predestining some to eternal life and some to eternal death in the lake of fire. They'll just say maybe God elected some to salvation and he passed over the others. They're already condemned. He just uh, did not elect them. Others, he'll say he actively elected to send them to the lake of fire. That's a, what's called a higher form of, of Calvinism. But then when you say, well, on what basis did God choose some to eternal life? So they'll say that's in the secret counsels of God. The problem with that is they're excluding knowledge. Anything available to God, uh, God through his omniscience is excluded because they have this weird way of talking about God's knowledge that God can't really know something unless he's determined it. And he can't determine it uh, if there's freedom, because you can't know what's going to take place if you can't uh, determine that that is going to take place. And so they get caught up, I think, into a, uh, a, a, a cul-de-sac, a logical cul-de-sac that has to end up in determinism. But here, Peter clearly says that God takes, in terms of his planning, he takes into account information available to him in his omniscience and his knowledge about what will take place and what might take place in human history ahead of time. Now let's go to the next passage, which is in 1 Peter. If you don't learn anything tonight, you'll learn at least where Acts is in 1 Peter. 1 Peter is towards the end of the New Testament after uh, Hebrews, James, and then 1 Peter. Now there's something interesting about uh, first Peter, James, and Hebrews that we'll t- see in this first verse. This may new, be a brand new insight for some of you. Uh, I first hit this reading through a commentary, some writings by Arnold Fruchtenbaum, who I respect for many, many things. And when I first read this, uh, because of my training and everything I'd heard before, I went, I don't think that's right. And then I started doing a lot of research and reading, and I went, oh, well, I think Arnold's right here. You have to pay attention to where the words take you. See, what has happened in a lot of, um, in a lot of these interpretations of certain things related to these epistles, we have a history of interpretation that's sometimes uh, affected by bad exegesis. And in 1 Peter chapter 5, Verse 13, Paul 
I mean, excuse me, Peter concludes with a greeting, and he says, She who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greet you, and so does Mark, my son. He mentions Babylon. And from the 2nd century B.C. and on, there has been a trend to interpret that word Babylon allegorically, that it is not referring to the literal Babylon on the uh, Euphrates River over in uh, what is now modern Iraq, but this is really just a code word for Rome. And that is how numerous people have interpreted First uh, Peter, he's writing to the church, and he, he's in, actually in Rome when he's writing this. But the reality is Peter was an apostle to the Jews, and Paul was an apostle uh, to the, uh, to the uh, Gentiles. If you haven't learned anything in our study of Acts, I hope you've at least learned that much. Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. That doesn't mean he never spoke to Jews, as we know, but that was his primary target audience. Peter is primarily responsible for taking the gospel to the Jews. Outside of Jerusalem, the largest population of Jews in the first century was in Babylon. How did they get there? They got hauled there during the uh, uh, first destruction of the temple uh, in the three deportations conducted by Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the Babylonians, 605, 597, and 586 B.C. That's when Daniel and his three friends were taken over in 605. And so a huge number of Jews were taken over when Jerusalem was destroyed, the temple was destroyed, and they were taken to Babylon. And until 1948 of this last century, just 65, 6, 7, 8 years ago, um, uh, 65, 66 years ago, there was always a uh, large contingent of Jews in Iraq. But when um, after the 1948-49 war for independence, the conclusion of Israel's war for independence, when a lot of uh, Arabs living in the area of the West Bank fled the war that was uh, that approached at the beginning uh, prior to the beginning of the war for independence in April, March and April of 1948, they fled, uh, believing some there, there some some were forced to flee because they were in uh, strategically significant geographical locations, and the Haganah, which is what the Jewish army was known as at the time, ran them out of their villages. But the vast number of them left because they believed the propaganda of the five. Uh, Arab nations that invaded Israel, that uh, the war would be short-lived and they would defeat these uh, these horrible Jews and the Zionist entity would be destroyed and they would come sweeping in and everybody could come back home. That created this refugee, so-called refugee problem of, of uh, so-called Palestinian Arabs. They chose to flee. They chose to believe the lie. They chose to leave their homes, and as a result, they became refugees, and they're still refugees. The other side of the story, there were about 750,000 that were displaced. Uh, the other part of that story today is that uh, only the Palestinian refugees are given inheritable refugee status. 
You have refugees from any other conflict in the world, and it's limited to those individuals, and their refugee status is not passed on to their descendants. Today we have about 3.5 million Palestinian refugees. Well, how did we get there from 750,000? Because they had babies like rabbits, and, uh, and those babies were given refugee status. And it's, and they're put under a, a, a special UN refugee committee that only oversees that one and only refugee problem, which is the Palestinians. And they give them lifetime benefits and their children lifetime benefits. And if they leave and they come to Canada or the United States or Mexico or Brazil or wherever, and they become successful doctors and lawyers and Indian chiefs, then they continue to get their subsidy from uh, from the UN, and they continue to be identified as Palestinian refugees. And this is part of when they talk about the right of return in trying to figure out the conflict between the Jews and Arabs in the Middle East. That's what they're talking about. It's a never-ending problem because they've created a unique standard of refugees. Well, at the time that that happened in 1949, that those set approximately 750,000 uh, Palestinian Arabs left and were displaced. Uh, what most people don't understand is the other side of the story is that approximately that same number of Jews were forcibly evicted from their uh, homes in Morocco and Tunisia and Egypt and Syria and Lebanon and uh, Iran and Iraq and Saudi Arabia, Kuwait and all these other areas so that the War, Israeli War for Independence created two groups of refugees, the Palestinian Arabs and all of these Israelis who were forced to give up all of their bank accounts, all of their possessions, all of the things that they owned, everything but what they could carry in a suitcase, and they were forcibly deported from Iraq and Iran and Kuwait and all of these other Arab countries. Until 1948, you had an enormous Iraqi uh, Jewish population, and it traced its way all the way back uh, to the early part of the 6th century, and late 7th century uh, B.C., and it was centered in Babylon. Later, it was centered in Baghdad, and uh, this was where Peter went. And Peter was an apostle to the Jews, and he went to Babylon, where there were Jews because he was taking the gospel to the Jewish community, and so he went to the largest Jewish community. Well, if we understand Babylon to be literal Babylon, and since we believe in literal uh, interpretation of Scripture, we're forced to do that, and it makes sense, it's historically viable, then it changes our understanding of what happens in verse 1. Peter addresses uh, the letter... He identifies himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ to the elect. Now, we're going to stop. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that. I want to qualify this to the elect, to those who are select, to the choice ones, residents, residents of the, and the New King James translates it, dispersion. But the Greek word is diaspora. This is a technical term that has been used since the, 6th century B.C. to designate the Jews that were scattered from their promised homeland. The diaspora began in 605, 597, 586 B.C. 
Uh, I, there was a partial return that occurred in approximately 538 B.C. and a few more that came back over the years. But the ones that returned in, in 538 when Cyrus allowed them to return from Babylon came mostly from the area of Iran and Babylon. They didn't come from, uh, they didn't leave their homes in Cappadocia and in Pisidian Antioch and Iconium and Egypt and Rome and all these places where they had established uh, communities, they came back mostly from uh, Babylon and Iran to resettle under Ezra and Nehemiah and Zerubbabel. And they that was the beginning of the Second Temple period. And it became known more technically as the Diaspora. And so Peter is writing to the residents of the diaspora. Now, who are the residents of the diaspora? Are they Gentiles or are they Jews? They're Jews. They're Jewish Christians, Jewish believers. So he's writing, just like the writer of Hebrews is writing to a Jewish audience, the writer of James is writing to a Jewish audience, the writer, uh, I mean, First Peter is being written to a Jewish Christian audience, a Jewish back group of Jewish background believers in Pontus, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. This is the area of what is now known as, as Turkey. So he says, uh, Peter Apostle to the elect. Now, the elect, the chosen ones, are first defined in terms of their geographical location. So he's writing to these early churches that still had a primarily Jewish uh, aspect to them located in the area of Turkey. Now, there, the second thing he says is to give us a basis for them being called the elect. And this is given in uh, uh, the second phrase, the phrase I have highlighted in... Um, and Brown, according to foreknowledge, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, and then the means comes in the next phrase, by the sanctification of the Spirit, and then the last phrase gives the purpose for this e election, okay? Now, the issue that we need to address here is the phrase, according to foreknowledge. What comes first? When you have a phrase, elect according to foreknowledge, what comes first, elect or foreknowledge? Foreknowledge. Elect is on the basis of something prior. Here it's foreknowledge. Foreknowledge comes before election, not after. Second thing we need to understand is the nuance, and the, that means the idea, the basic meaning of the word according to, it's the Greek preposition kata, which usually means according to a norm or a standard. And we see that the preposition usually qualifies the uh, uh, an action idea uh, when it's used with a verbal term such as elect or making a choice. So it's going to qualify that term. Now we have a parallel verse related to the Antichrist. I don't have the verse up on the board, but it's a simple verse. Uh, 2 Thessalonians 2.9, the Antichrist comes according, uh, whose coming is according to the working of Satan. According to the working of Satan. Now that's our parallel. What does it mean that the Antichrist will come uh, uh, according to the working of Satan? That means that his position and his power at that future time 
is going to be on the basis of or because of Satan's working in him. So it almost has that idea of because of Satan's empowerment, because of Satan's enablement. So that if we take that idea that we see in, in the parallel phrase in 2 Thessalonians 2.9 or a similar phrase in 2 Thess 2.9 and apply it to 1 Peter 1.2, then what we see is according to or because of the foreknowledge of God. The foreknowledge of God is what shapes the choice. The foreknowledge of God becomes the foundation for the making of uh, the selection which is identified in in the main verbal idea of, of election. So according to the foreknowledge of God qualifies and gives the foundation for the verbal idea of election. So this means that the ground for the action or the reason for the action of election is the foreknowledge of God. One commentator, William Kelly, interprets it as that election is grounded in or election is a result of the foreknowledge. Another identifies it, tries to explain it as saying that election depends on foreknowledge. Foreknowledge is the condition. And all of these explanations are trying to get at the same idea, which is that God first knew all of the knowable, in his omniscience, then he knew what would take place because of his foreknowledge, and then he um, made his choice on the basis of the information available to him in his foreknowledge. Uh, as we wrap up here, as I was thinking about this the other day, it took me back to a uh, something that happened in Sunday school class when I was in high school. Pam and Tinker were there with me at the time. We talked about the other the other day. Uh, we had a Sunday school teacher named Bill Gleason, and I must have been about the ninth ninth grade or so at the time, and I don't remember anything else we ever learned in that Sunday school class, but I remember this. He came into the Sunday school class, and he had a large television set. You remember the old box sets from 50 years ago? And he put that up on the, on a table in the, in front, in front of him, and plugged it in. Of course, it wasn't set up to really take, uh, see anything. Plugged it in, turned it on, and said that this was a special set he, he had designed. He was a scientist of some type, I think. And that he had designed it so that it could show what was going on in somebody's life, what they were going to do that afternoon. And so as he looked at that, he could tell, and he, I think he had picked a couple of kids that he, would say, okay, well, you're going to, this is what you're going to do this afternoon, this is what you're going to do this afternoon. But am I, by my knowledge of what you're going to do this afternoon, causing you to do what you're going to do this afternoon? Not at all. But he, through this medium, could tell exactly what someone was going to choose to do in the future. And that illustration always, always stuck with me. Foreknowledge is like that God knows what's going to happen, and he takes into account. He is not, I want to nuance this very carefully, he's not making his choice because he sees faith in you. See, the Calvinists will say that's what we're trying to say. No, we're not trying to say that. Some people say that out of ignorance maybe, but the, the Scripture always says we're saved through faith, not because of faith. The cause of our faith is the death of Christ. Uh, the cause of our salvation is the death of Christ on the cross. 
the, the, we're, we're saved through faith. That makes faith non-meritorious. It's simply the channel. It's like the pipe or the tube through which God's uh, salvation flows to us from the cross. We're not saved because of that, but that's the means by which the work of Christ is applied to our life. We are saved uh, through faith. So when we plug that into Romans eight twenty eight and 29, for whom he foreknew, God in his, um, in his foreknowledge uh, is going to elect certain people. Now, we're going to get into this next week. I'm going to give you a foreshadowing here. There's about three different views of God's plan of election. Over my course of my life, I've held all three. Uh, the first is the Calvinist view that God just chooses based on his character and based on his, his knowledge. Um, and, and it does that really, and, and that's a determinative knowledge in a Calvinistic sense. That was Lewis Perry Chafer's view. I, when I first read Chafer, I thought, well, I was always taught Chafer knew what he was talking about. I guess I'll believe what he says. I don't believe that he was right on that because Chafer was a, an ordained uh, Presbyterian. Southern Presbyterian, and I think he was in, he was more Calvinistic than we would be. Most people call him a light to moderate Calvinist, uh, but that's his that was his position. The second position is that God elects solely on the basis of His foreknowledge, and again, it interprets elect as an, event, an individual selection to salvation. I don't see elect used individually except with the plan for the Lord Jesus Christ going to the cross. What I do see is, and we'll get into this a little more, is that God has a plan for groups. God has a plan for those who are the descendants of Abraham. God has a plan for those who are in Christ. Those who trust in Jesus as their Savior are entered into union with Christ and therefore become identified with him as the elect, and we are elect corporately by virtue of our union uh, with Christ. We'll get into that a little more as we go through some things coming up. What we see here is that omniscience is the outer blue circle. God knows all of the knowable. I should have made that circle as large as I could make it, but uh, I wanted to just get across the idea that foreknowledge is just a subset of all that God knows. Foreknowledge relates to what he knows will take place. Omniscience has to do with all the things he knows could, might have, would have under different circumstances uh, taken place. Thomas Edgar, who uh, has taught Greek for many, many years at Capital Bible Seminary, is a graduate of Annapolis, served, took his commission in the Marine Corps, went to Dallas Seminary for his THM and, and uh, THD, and uh, hopefully taught uh, Dan Ingram everything he knows about Greek. That is everything Edgar knows about Greek, which is a lot. Uh, Edgar wrote a great paper on foreknowledge, and he concludes, he says, Thus, God knows everything that will happen if he causes it, if he causes only some of it, or if he merely allows it to happen. Since he is omniscient, he knows what will happen, even if he allows the universe to be completely random. He knows what will happen regardless of the cause. Whether man can philosophically explain how this works is irrelevant. Since man has no ability to explain something only God possesses and about which man knows nothing apart from Scripture. That's a great quote. It takes a lot of time to just sort of think and ponder that particular uh, quote.
Anyway, next time I want to come back and I want to talk about God and contingency. Now, that's another fancy term. God knows all the things that could have, would have, or should have taken place but won't. And that's a just an incredible concept that's known as God's knowledge of contingent things. What could, might have, should have, would have if you had made another decision. If you'd married somebody else, if you had gone to a different school, if you had decided to live in another state, take that other job, God knows everything that would have happened in that life. Uh, he knows all the variables. And God is able to, he is so great that he's able still to work out his plan and purposes no matter how you want to use your decision to mess it all up. You can't. He'll work it all out for good. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things and reflect upon your foreknowledge, election. These are very difficult concepts. But ultimately what we understand is that you will work all things together for good. You work out your plan, and no matter what we're going through, we can have hope, confidence, uh, certainty, because we know you are in control, and therefore we just can relax and trust in you, knowing that you are working out your purposes in our life. And we pray that you would really use these studies to uh, strengthen and encourage uh, many folks who are dealing with tough times right now, and that their faith would be strengthened and they would be encouraged. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.